As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our weekend review. Liverpool continue to be world class as they battle Chelsea en masse and won at Wembley <laughs> thanks to Shimikas. The Premier League title will go to the last day as Man City failed to keep West Ham at bay. For Everton, things were going fine until they started the game with 11 and ended with 9. Elsewhere, Milan are on course for Scudetto glory. Haaland ended his Dortmund story and Sam Kerr brought the Women's FA Cup Fury almost rhymes. <laughs> My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who can locate the place he lives in on a map, which sets him apart from Jack Grealish, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. <laughs> I hope I can. Pressure's on now. Ryan, I am sad that we're coming to the end of the season because I feel like you are like hitting your stride in the rhyming introductions. That was phenomenal, my friend. Even the like the slant rhyme at the end, still amazing. Oh, you're too kind, sir. You're too kind. Uh, did you happen to catch Jack Grealish and the clip of him try or being asked to identify Birmingham? Uh, on the map of England, which is just point to the middle of England. Uh, he, <laughs> he said, uh, he comes around the corner and looks at the map. And he says, what is that England? And then a pause. I've got no chance when asked to look for his hometown. <laughs> Yikes. I mean, on the one hand, I would love to like mock that. And I do assume that you all are taught geography at a pretty young age like we are. Like I think I had to learn all states and capitals in like third or fourth grade. But even so, Jack Grealish, I'm going to assume school, not a priority f- for him from a fairly young age. So I can't be too upset with him because I'm sure he can't point to something on a map, but at the same time knows the intricacies of everything about football that Pep Guardiola has ever asked him to memorize. And you got to make some space in your brain somehow. I guess geography was that- where Grealish found some space. Yeah. That video is a big blow to uh, Britain's kind of self-pride because one of our favourite pastimes, Britain, uh, Britain's pastimes, is to watch those Jimmy Kimmel videos that oh, he yeah. asks uh, <laughs> Americans to point to certain things on a map of America and we all go, ha ha, oh yeah, yeah, stupid Americans. Oh no, Jack <laughs> Grealish, what are you doing? And to be fair, England and the United States, the exact same landmass and size. Yeah. So it England's makes like, sense that they would both struggle. It's like the size of Florida. Come on, Jack. <laughs> come on, come on. <sighs> anyway, also joining us, the man whose uh, analysis hits like a Jack Grealish volley, keeping the Grealish theme going, Joe Lowry, Arizona Joe. Good day to you, sir. 
Good day to you, Ryan. What a goal that was as well. It's it's a pretty well-hit strike and, and uses the ground, I guess. I'm not sure that was intentional, but it works out in the end. I also just like how, going back to the Jack Grealish map thing, he could probably point to Tallahassee if you gave him a map of Florida or Orlando or Tampa because it seems like everyone from the United Kingdom loves Florida more than they love anything else in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Confirmed. Uh, I'll, I'll check in with uh, our fourth member of the team here, Graham Ruthven. That's true, right? Oh, yeah, which is why I'm going in two days. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, yes, um, Graham. If you walk Uh, down International Drive in Orlando, you you can walk maybe three paces before hitting a British person wearing a soccer shirt of a lower league team. That's like kind of the rules there. (laughs) Yeah, International Drive, otherwise known as uh, just a row of your favorite restaurants, Ryan. Just Olive Garden, followed by Hard Rock Cafe, followed by Chili's. They're all there. (sighs) There's a Bonefish Grill. It's all there. Senior Frogs is there too. Oh, Senior Frogs. Living the dream. You know, when you all drive. describe all of these restaurants, all I think of is that scene in The Simpsons when they go to the the new, like, po- it's like all the different pop-up restaurants and different yeah. stalls, and then they're all just fed from one central meat, de- like, depository, <laughs> and it just puts them on a conveyor belt. That's what I'm thinking. All of these restaurants you're listing all just come from one central meat repository. I, I was thinking of The Simpsons as well. I was trying to think what it was, and I think it was like Restaurant Boulevard and yeah. Simpsons Hit and Run. Did anyone play Simpsons Hit and Run on like the PlayStation or the PlayStation yep. Two? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Taylor, your reference to the meat all coming from the same place. You've 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 tapped into the joke about uh, capitalism that the uh, Simpsons were getting at there. I think maybe perhaps. Yeah, just standardization uh, leads to not deliciousness. Yeah, that checks out. Indeed. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about this weekend. Before we get there, Graham, I have to come back to you to discuss something that was all over my timeline this weekend and all over your timeline, the Eurovision Song Contest. Yes. I have not seen it since I was about 10 years old, uh, but I noticed a lot of my American friends were uh, playing along with it this Saturday. Um, Tell us uh, the reasons why we should have done so. Because it's just really good, messy fun. Uh, and I, I kind of love Eurovision Song ca- Contest. I mean, I don't know if it kind of fits in with it. It's not very on brand for me to like the Eurovision Song Contest, but I do. And Britain did well this year, which was... I strangely got more invested in that than I thought I would. Like, it got to the point where Britain might win it after years of finishing bottom. And I yeah. uh, was then disappointed that Ukraine won it. Damn Ukraine! What did they ever do? <laughs> but, okay, uh, wow. Wow. I have a quick question. Sorry to get Graham off his Ukraine rant there, I guess. Maybe I'm not. Sorry about that. Pro- probably uh, a good Joe, thing, Joe. Probably yeah, a good I thing. I appreciate it, Joe. Okay, I appreciate cool. it a lot. <laughs> You're welcome. I thought I might be doing everyone a favor. I, I don't understand what Eurovision is. Can someone explain it to me in like 10 to 20 words or less? Because I'm seeing all sorts of things on my timeline. On my timeline, I'm seeing Michael Cox write <laughs> articles about this this mm. event for The Athletic. And I am just utterly baffled as to what it is and why he's writing about it and what on earth is going on, Ryan slash Graham. Graham, elevate the picture. Go on. There is a strange overlap between Eurovision uh, Twitter and football Twitter. I also noticed that on my timeline as well. A lot of football writers really into it. But I mean, the, the concept is simple. Write a song, sing a song, people vote for a song, and a song wins at the end of the day. That's it's like a talent show. Concept. Just a big it's, talent yeah. show. It's like American Idol mixed with like like a bit of a cultural anthropology because you'll get 
like some like I think one year like England had like Ingelberg Humperdinck. I don't know why that was your nominee yeah. for a pop competition, but you're, like <laughs> I, I think that same year like Russia sent uh, singing and dancing babushkas. It was like seven grandmas who all sang like a pop song together. Yeah, that's awesome. So so you'll get and then like Sweden usually has somebody in a sequined outfit uh, that also has fur on it singing like ABBA. So you get different weird pop songs, but it's very fun because you find yourself voting like really supporting random ones. Like Estonia, I think one year I was all in on on Estonia. This was when we were in Turkey and it was like a drinking thing at the bar because everybody would get assigned a country and then <laughs> you were obligated to cheer for that country. Wow. Norway were really fun this year. They had they had two uh, wolves dressed up as wolves with yellow wolf masks and they were called Keith and Jim and their, their techno pop Jim. song was about, um, you know, the wolves eating the grandma, like that old tale. Yeah. Ah, oh, classic. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was good. good. I mean, Erling Haaland had himself a good weekend. <laughs> oh boy. He did indeed. What, well, one more before we leave this alone, Graham. If it's like a, a pop contest, you get one country enters one song and they all fight each other and it's very politically motivated, all the voting. With Britain, why don't we just enter like the Rolling Stones every year? Like a really good, like we have a lot of good music from Britain. Why is it always someone terrible? Uh, it's more fun when it's terrible. It was. I said it was quite. I said it was quite good to see Britain do well because for the first time ever, we just kind of put in a memorable act with a decent pop song, and it did well. But I enjoy it more when we put in. Do you remember the what the the British entry that was like supposed to be air hostesses fl- fl- uh, singing a song about flying high and the Mile High Club and everything? That was more fun than actually doing well. Yeah, it's it's really important, it, Joe. It's very similar in vibe to like the uh, the Pro Bowl and the NFL. Like uh. people care, but they also simultaneously don't care at all. And if you try too hard, if you put too much effort into it, then that's sort of it's not cool. Like it goes against it, and then yeah, exactly. Fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like if Britain put in who's our biggest pop star right now, Dua Lipa, right? If we were to put in Dua Lipa. I think Julipa would finish last because everyone would go, ah, you're taking it too seriously. That's cheating. <laughs> like, we've done 10 minutes on a rhyming introduction, Jack Grealish not knowing geography in Eurovision. I love this show. Oh. I love this show, guys. Uh, on oh. that note, for subtly getting us back on track, Taylor, thank you very much. Why don't we go to uh, two teams who were taking it very seriously this weekend at Wembley Stadium for the FA Cup final. Chelsea nil, uh, Liverpool nil after extra time. Liverpool winning their second trophy of the season, 6-5 on penalties. Uh, a wonderful day at Wembley with its massive shadow over half the field whenever it's sunny. Wonderful design, wonderful design. Uh, <laughs> Liverpool's eighth FA Cup win. Um, shades of the League Cup final here, of course, going to penalties once again, Graham. But I think this one wasn't quite as fun as the League Cup final, not quite as open. A few decent chances, of course. But, Graham, both teams looking a bit more tied in the old leggies than yeah. they were at the League Cup final, huh? Yes, certainly by the time you got to extra time where both teams looked gassed and just wanted to get to, to penalties, I think. Get Four rid of extra between... time. Get rid of extra time. Sorry, who is that? I don't know. Where did that come from? You, you have my vote, mysterious <laughs> anti-extra time voice. And mine. Um, yeah, four games between these two teams this season and four draws. It seems like Tuchel, he has the formula to nullify Liverpool, but not necessarily to get the, the better of them. Although in the first 50 minutes, it felt like Liverpool might blow away Chelsea. They started very strongly. They were playing with such in, um, intensity and pace, and there were good chances for Luis Diaz and uh, Naby Keita had a good chance and Diogo Jota. And then Chelsea started to settle. They started to put some passes in behind for Lukaku, who by his standard of this season is in reasonable form. And it feels like Chelsea are st- 
just starting to get slightly more out of him. It's a shame then that the season is basically coming to an end next next weekend. Um, they started to make better use of uh, Rhys James down the right side. Pulisic looked dangerous for a period. He was he was doing that thing he does very well of drop just dropping back when the cross comes into the box and that creates a yard or two of space for himself and had he been a little bit cleaner in some of his shooting, the two good chances he got from doing this, he kind of he miss he miss hits. He doesn't catch them cleanly. Had he caught them cleanly, then he surely would have tested Allison. They probably would have been Chelsea's best opportunities of the whole match. But I, uh, it was an interesting match. But it really does feel like Tuchel's whole game plan is about nullifying Liverpool. And as I say, it that doesn't always mean he's going to get the better of them. Liverpool just have more weapons they have a stronger mentality and i think that showed in the penalty shootout mentality monsters graham as we are now to refer to them um joe do you think justice was done in the in the eventual winner here as as graham said liverpool did, certainly came out of the blocks pretty hot i think they had a better in the first half um hitting the post uh, late on twice in succession do you, do you feel like the right team run uh, lifted the giant trophy with the lid that always awkwardly falls off on the floor <laughs> Yes. Yes, Ryan, I I do feel that way. It was close-ish after that first 15 minutes, but I do think on the whole that Liverpool was the better team in this game. They were consistently more dangerous, I think. And to Graham's point, they forced Chelsea, or maybe this was Chelsea's plan all along, to kind of just focus on defending them rather than really getting out, opening up the game and attacking on their own. Now, Liverpool weren't perfect in this game, but that first 15 minutes, I know Graham already mentioned it, but that was maybe the best I've seen them all season long. And I know that's a ridiculous thing to say in 15 minutes of a cup final, which is not always the best soccer in in a a stretch where they don't actually put the ball in the back of the net. But they opened up this game in a crazy way in the first 15 minutes. Luis Diaz, who was playing on the left side from Liverpool in their front three, was running at Trevor Chaloba over and over and over again, 1v1 on that left side with, with a couple of Chelsea defenders to Chaloba's left, to be fair. But he had so much space to drive the ball at Chelsea's back line because Liverpool kept drawing Reese James, who was playing the right wing back spot for Chelsea in their, their back three, back five. Reese James, they kept drawing him forward and out of position so that then Luis Diaz could release down in the half space or a little bit wider and run at a center back 1v1. And it was working really well. Credit to Chelsea then for becoming a bit more organized defensively. I thought I saw them become a bit more compact and really focus on trying to set up shop in as much as a Thomas Tuchel team ever sets up shop. They weren't West Ham. We'll talk more about them later. But they were defending pretty resolutely for stretches of this game. On the whole, though, with the chances that Liverpool had at the start they had, I think they were deserved winners of this of this competition. Uh, Jay, you mentioned Reese James being pulled out of position there, but it was part of Tuchel's plan to sort of use him and Mount on the right and, you know, overload on that side and then get the ball to yeah. certain Mr. Pulisic in the middle. So they were they were exploiting that channel too, right? Yeah, that's right. that's great observation from you. I think Chelsea deliberately tried to combine and have numbers on that right side to then do the thing that Graham talked about, where Christian Pulisic, who I thought was largely excellent in this game, certainly one of the better games I've seen him play all season. And I do think he was probably Chelsea's most dangerous attacker. I wrote as much uh, yesterday. I think he was really strong coming in from that left side because he had space. He was more isolated on that side. It's it's this idea of overloading one area to isolate another part of the field because you're going to naturally draw the opposition's defense to the side that you're overloading. And so when you have Mason Mount 
and uh, and Reese James on that right side, it created gaps for Pulisic to do the the hold back and then cut in front of my defender kind of run where he just bends around and arrives at just the right time. And he couldn't quite nail those shots, as Graham mentioned, but he was excellent at that. That was one thing we saw from Pulisic. Another thing was, as Romelu Lukaku would push Liverpool's center backs back, and he, he did do that, you kind of have to respect Romelu Lukaku, even though he's not really in any sort of form for himself. Getting, getting the space behind Lukaku was a huge thing for Christian Pulisic in this game. He would tuck underneath, he would drift in almost as a number 10 and drive forward. And that's what happens on the, the pass he has from Marcus Alonso. That Alonso can't quite get that shot off. The first touch isn't clean. He gets a shot off, but it's not, not well taken from Marcus Alonso. But Pulisic, I think, was dangerous coming inside and using the aggression that Chelsea had on their right side to his advantage coming in off the left. Big T, what did you make of uh, Chelsea, in particular Mr. Pulisic in this one? It felt uh, for me like one of those like the officiating decisions where it goes to VAR and the commentator says like uh, it's one where if he called it this way like VAR is going to agree if he called it this way VAR is going to agree like it's sort of it's a marginal decision in my mind I forgive me if that's muddy but it's basically if Chelsea had won this penalty shootout I'd be like yeah that that seems okay that seems deserved but Liverpool winning it I'm like yeah that feels deserved I think both teams had their opportunities and they were really interesting sort of swings in this one because as Joe mentioned like Chalaba having to do a lot of work but then I would say Chalaba also puts in that sort of diving challenge in the I think 84th minute uh, where if he doesn't I think Jota is there no Andy Robertson is there at the back post and I think that's just an easy tap in that's the game one but Chalaba puts him off and so that could have been this heroic moment of like oh they were able to weather the storm and then they win the shootout but they didn't win the shootout uh, although they did go with like a defenders only approach in the first couple rounds of the shootout which was an interesting decision from Thomas Tuchel for Liverpool I thought uh Deserved winners for being able to take their chances, especially in the shootout. But I think also a tired Liverpool still finding a way to grind their way to a win feels like a good result as well. How did I they... thought the way that sorry Ryan, I thought the way that Klopp and Tuchel approached the penalties was was really interesting. When you talk about the penalty shoot out there, Taylor Klopp admitted afterwards that Liverpool have been working with a company called Neuro Eleven. Basically, they are specialists that help with brain training in sport. And and I love that about Liverpool, that they're so meticulous and Klopp is open to taking advice from others that maybe have more specialist expertise in, in other areas. Because, of course, the, remember the, the much-discussed throw-in coach that seemed to upset a lot of people on TalkSport, but... In this match, Michael Cox actually wrote a piece for The Athletic, a really interesting piece about how Alexander-Arnold was using throw-ins to unsettle Chelsea. So there's another area where Liverpool are looking to gain an advantage. And some managers just wouldn't accept that others know more than them about a certain thing. But Klopp uses that to his advantage. And there was also a really good thread on Twitter that highlighted the difference in approach from Klopp and Tuchel before the penalties, you know, when they, they all gather, the teams gather after a uh, full time of extra time and they're, they're picking who's going to take the penalty shootout, uh, let's take the penalties in the shootout, sorry. And basically the difference in approach can be boiled down to Klopp knows what his selections are within 60 seconds, which means he then uses the rest of the time talking to the players, relaxing them. He also does those talks one to one which I think is really clever because it's about taking the pressure off. It's about making it an intimate relationship between the penalty taker and Klopp rather than the whole team or even the whole stadium. Meanwhile, Tuchel is still making his selections right up until the penalty start. He's still going around the circle of players. He's got his bit of paper. He's asking who wants to take one. And even when he's talking to them clearly about making your decision and so on, he's doing it as a group, which according to this Twitter thread, and I, I agree, 
heightens the pressure and makes it more of a, a group pressure rather than that one-to-one dynamic that Klopp had with his players and it was all very stressful and manic that that period for Chelsea and maybe that was the thing that that made a difference because as you said the Ryan mentality monsters which is what Liverpool are now known as that sort of thing doesn't happen by accident and it feels like Liverpool are putting a lot of effort into having the the strongest mentality possible. Graham just to, to call up on that Tuchel thing I mean Germans are known for their organizational skills. That feels like going around and not deciding the order until the time is almost up. That feels like turning up to a Zoom meeting at work and like reading the minutes and the agenda like five minutes into the meeting. That's like, yeah, that's crazy. Surely. Why haven't they done that like in the 70th minute? Or, I, I, yeah, it seems strange time. to me. I, I, I'm not so I'm not so sure about the 70th minute because obviously you have substitutions and extra time and so on. But certainly once you get to the last five minutes of extra time, it would it would seem sensible to start to come up with an order. Maybe Tuchel's argument is he needs to speak to the players to know whether they're confident enough to take one. And in that moment, obviously things can change. You know, if you if you've missed a chance a couple minutes before the end of extra time, maybe you don't want to take one. I don't know. I'm just I'm trying to play devil's advocate a little bit there because it very much seems like Klopp's approach where everything was settled and set and everyone knew their responsibilities that felt like a a much more holistic and sensible approach from Liverpool Fair enough Uh, while we're on Liverpool Graham um, Trent Alexander-Arnold that pass he played through to the outside of his boot can we just talk about that for 20 minutes yeah we could easily do that Joe I noticed you had that in the notes as well I think you appreciated that I cannot believe that that happened. So, so Trent Alexander-Arnold had so many good throw-ins in this game, and I, th- I think that article you referenced about Michael Cox, the one that he'd written for The Athletic, excuse me, did a great job of highlighting those. So he was contributing in some dead ball situations. He had some really great crosses, and one in particular to Andy Robertson in the 51st minute. That was a good chance for Liverpool. But easily the play of the game for me, every play included, was that outside of the football to Luis Diaz. It's the eighth minute. Alexander-Arnold has the ball. It's coming towards him. He hits it with the outside of his right. And it doesn't just, you know, trickle over to Luis Diaz. No, it's a line splitting, a back line breaking through ball into Luis Diaz in behind. It is one of the most aesthetically pleasing passes. It's not maybe the most aesthetically pleasing. I still cannot get that Pavard ball out of my head. But when we had that listener question not too long ago about the best pass of all time, this pass for me is at least in the conversation for best pass. It is entirely outrageous. I have not seen a ball like this all season long, and I, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen a ball quite like this one. So good, guys. Was good. Uh, and yeah, and a good result of Liverpool overall. Um, Taylor, have you any more to say on this game, or can we just talk about how many flares there were at Wembley Stadium? Because <laughs> You are welcome to talk about that. I want to talk about the penalty shootout for a moment, just yeah. to look at what Liverpool uh, did in this one. Not even from their takers, but from the way Allison. Uh, went because he makes the one save uh, in this one. He There's also the miss from Espelicueta, but that's off the post. So I can't give Allison credit for that one. I will obviously give him credit for the save on Mason Mount. But in this game, uh, Chelsea had Marcos Alonso, Reese James, and Jorginho, all of whom who took penalties previously against Liverpool. Uh, they all went the opposite direction of where they went in that last shootout. But Allison dove the same direction as they had last time. So he definitely did his homework watching the footage. But as the the shootout goes on, it starts with Reese James, who puts his uh, penalty. He was the third taker. He puts it pretty much dead center, I think, deliberately. And from there on, penalties four, five, six, and seven are all almost in the exact same spot. And Allison dives the wrong way for Reese James, dives the wrong way for Jorginho. By the time it gets to Ziyech, he dives the right way. And I think at that point, 
Maybe it's just head games for Mason Mount. I think he had always planned to go the direction he did and didn't want to deviate from that. Maybe thought, okay, Allison will dive the opposite way. I'm, I'm guessing there's some head games in there, but Allison guesses right, makes the save. And a critical moment to me, I watched this like 15 times to make sure, and I think, I think this is what would have happened. Allison makes that save, and the ball goes straight up in the air. Did anyone notice this, or am I the only lunatic who pays way too much attention to penalty shootouts? Go on. Probably, we, but yes, go on. We've seen this <laughs> once before in, I think it was like, maybe it was in Egypt. I forget where it was, but the save is made. The ball goes straight up in the air, but it was so well hit that when it comes down, it has spin on it, and the goalkeeper runs off to celebrate, and the ball bounces and rolls into the goal, and it's still a live ball from that shot. And so in that situation, that goal counted. And here, uh, Allison makes that save, jumps up to celebrate, and the ball bounces. And he sees it and hops over and catches it, then puts the ball down and then continues to celebrate. And if he had run off, uh, like, you know, I made that save, I did it, that ball would have absolutely gone into the goal and it would have counted and been hilarious and a historic moment, I would say. So just that little bit of awareness from Allison, I think, made the difference uh, on the day after making the initial save. But I do love a good penalty shootout to get the diagram it and see what's happening. Uh, you're catching a ball that lands near him is why he's paid the big bucks, I suppose, Taylor. There we go. There we go. <laughs> well, will you, uh, I think probably... also kicking the ball pretty far, but yes, yeah, that too. Yeah. I-, I like the way my my feed on Twitter is filled with Allison starting to happen whenever Allison does something good because my feed is mainly 30s and 40s people who like the Lemonheads because I'm sad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anymore. Josie, Lemonheads were a band in the 90s. We'll get there one day. Um, I gathered that from context. Thank you. <laughs> any more on this one, Joe, or shall we move on? I, I think I think we can move on unless anybody else has anything left oh, is to there anything, say. Actually, Graham, maybe I'll ask you about the uh, uh, Mosala and uh, Virgil van Dijk getting some knocks in this one. I think Jurgen Klopp said they're kind of okay, but how do you see Liverpool's rest of very important remainder of the season playing out and uh, how much has this game taken out? And bear in mind, this is the second time they've gone to extra time in a cup competition as well. Yeah. They're playing the maximum amount of games. They are mentality monsters. They're super, super fit, but... Um, how much does this drain the uh, the battery bar? I think I think it has drained them. Yeah, I mean, sixty three matches by the time they get to the Champions League final. As I said earlier, by the time you got to extra time, um, these two teams just looked like they wanted to lie in. They just wanted to sleep. And keep in mind, Chelsea have have I think they've played a similar number already because they've played the Super Cup and they've been at the Club World Cup as well. And they went far in the in the Carabao Cup and relatively far in the Champions League. And then their thirty eight Premier League fixtures as well. With Liverpool stating the obvious, of course, if they're without Salah and, and Virgil van Dijk for the Champions League final and for the final weekend of the Premier League season, that is a that's a huge blow. Um, they're two, arguably their two best players. I think Salah in particular, if he is, even if he's not fully fit, that's a significant blow because while I think Duel Jota is an excellent centre forward, he doesn't offer nearly as much off the ball. And there was a telling moment not long after Jota comes on in this match where he he gave up the ball and then he kind of refused to chase back. He kind of stopped, which is unusual for a Liverpool forward to do that. And there were actually groans from the Liverpool fans and the BBC commentators here. They commented on it. I don't know if this is a, a relatively new thing, but it's certainly on my mind now when I watch Jota for Liverpool. And it seems fans are also noticing it, that he is the odd one out in terms of his off-the-ball work. And that is something that obviously Salah is a goal machine, but that is also something that he he gives Liverpool. So I think Salah, as, as good as Virgil van Dijk is, I think you could bring in Matip and Kanati and that would still be a very strong defence. I think Salah would be a, a, a huge loss for that Champions League final. 
Would indeed. And he has suffered uh, in a Champions League final previously with uh, certain opponents, has he not, Graham? So um, we shall see how that one goes. Liverpool, uh, of course, still on for the quadruple. Chelsea missing out on the thinking man's treble, the European Super Cup, the FIFA Club World Cup and the English FA Cup. <laughs> Sorry for them, Chelsea fans. Uh, when we come back after the break, we're going to talk Premier League and in particular the title race living another day at the London Stadium. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attentions to that there Premier League, which has one week left to play. A few teams with a few extra games coming this week as well. But this weekend, this Sunday in particular, West Ham played Manchester City. This one finished in a Desmond 2-2. Uh, what a fantastic game this was, Taylor Rockwell. City coming back from uh, two goals down with a brace from Jared Bowen in this one. Rib Myers missing a penalty late on. Um, actually... Graham, maybe you, you're the kit expert. Do we have stats on City playing in that terrible third kit? Because I can't remember them doing well in it. <laughs> we, I don't have stats handy, but I feel like that is now my, my mission is to find <laughs> out whether City drop points or lose games more often in that terrible, terrible third kit. If indeed they do lose more games in that kit, we can all agree it's deserved. Indeed, indeed. They deserve everything that's coming to them in that kit. Uh, Taylor, I'll come back to you. Liverpool, um, if they beat Southampton and Wolves, Man City will now need to win at Aston Villa next Sunday to take the title. So they obviously dropped two points in this one. Do you think they deserve to drop two points, Taylor Rockwell? Yeah, I mean, I think West Ham caused them some problems and did some if not like creative, then very deliberate things. And they worked out really well in that first half. But I think it's also a credit to Man City that I think, as we've seen them do a couple of different times this season, came out for this, the second half, just a different entity. Liverpool have done the same as well. And there is a belief to Man City once they start to get a scent of goal, once they start to feel like they're going to get back into that, into the game, that becomes really difficult to limit, I think, if you're an opposition team. And in this case, Jack Grealish gets that goal, what, four or five minutes into the second half. And from there, you can just feel that like, oh, no, oh, no, it's going to happen. Energy from West Ham. And there's just a bit more panic. And I would say there's a bit more panic defending, but also in front of goal that they could have had more opportunities. West Ham missed some chances. Mikel Antonio fails to hit the target uh, when he's played in by Fernandinho, which I'm going to assume was a thesis statement moment for Ryan Bailey as to why Fernandinho should not be a center back. Uh, But I think just the way City just go about their business and ultimately could have gotten all three points if Mares finishes that penalty, but he doesn't because Fabianski makes the save. And I thought that was also sort of fitting in the end that it ends in a draw and Fabianski gets to be the hero because I thought he was immense in this one his distribution critical for both West Ham's goals and he makes a big save and then he has the penalty save Uh, I thought he was very important to West Ham on both sides of the ball City need to find a consistent penalty taker it's remarkable I think they found one Graham what's coming they have found one (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's going to be a great season next season. Graham, I'm sorry to stop on your point. I just wanted to uh, be sad for a moment at the idea that Erling Haaland's <laughs> going to score 4,000 goals. He may well do indeed. Um, Graham, can we talk about Man City's defense in this one? Obviously had some some good defending going on at times and, and you know, the fullbacks doing good jobs as they usually do. But for Bowen to sort of have his run not followed at least mm. twice... Is it, are, we, are we putting that on Laporte? What are we? What was going on here? So I, I wrote a piece after this game and it was focused around a player who didn't even feature for City on, on this day and it was Kyle Walker. And we, we spoke about it after the Champions League exit to Real Madrid. But I think this was another match which demonstrated just how important he is to Man City and how big a mess he is when he, when he doesn't play. And if you look at the statistics, it's not just the eye test, so... Bowen, as you say there, Ryan, he gets through twice. He beats the offside trap twice, um, makes the most of City's high line, finishes well, particularly the one where he's out wide and he has to kind of clip the finish over the, the sliding back defender to the goal line. That was that was a very nice finish. But you do wonder if Kyle Walker is in that Man City defence, whether he gets back and even if he doesn't win the ball, he just puts enough pressure on Bowen. How many times have we seen that before? And so he's so important to how they how they play City and how they make that high line work. And you can see that in the st- statistics. So he, uh, he's, he averages eight ball recoveries per 90 minutes in the Premier League this season. He, um, he, he I'm trying to look through my stats here. When City have got Walker on the pitch they allow 0.44 expected goals and without him that rises to 0.72 and most telling is when he is on the pitch they allow 0.8 opposition fast breaks per 90 minutes and with Walker on the pitch it's uh, or sorry without him it's 1.5 so all these measures kind of bear out the eye test of City are more defensively vulnerable when Kyle Walker isn't on the pitch and you have to you have to move Yao Cancelo to right back which means that Cancelo isn't able to do that thing on the left side where he drives into central midfield and provides an extra body in the middle. Zinchenko was trying his best, bless him, to do this in in this match, but wasn't having all that much joy because, and this may be a simplistic, reductive way to look at it, he's not as good a player as Cancelo, certainly not in a creative sense. So you're not just losing Walker at right back, you're losing uh, what Cancelo does at left back as well and then to compound everything in this match you have Fernandinho who just does not have at 37 years old just does not have he's never had acceleration or pace to be honest but certainly not now in his career so once West Ham were getting in behind they were gone and it wasn't just Bowen as well it was Mikel Antonio as well who who has has a little bit of pace he was getting in behind so it was it was a bad matchup for Man City yes they do have injuries but I think West Ham looked at maybe what Real Madrid had done to City and they weren't too worried about having lots of share of the ball but when they had those moments there was a focus to West Ham's play their final ball was good their decision making was good and in the end that that kind of cost it and that's that whole that whole brand for West Ham of being decisive when they have the ball because they don't often have a ton of the ball they're they're not in the top uh, few teams in the Premier League in possession they only average 48.5% this season but they're seventh in the league in expected goals. That tells us that they're creating chances with the relatively little possession they have. Now, they're they're sort of mid-table in that possession statistic, but still, the idea that they're really decisive and aggressive when they have the ball, that's a huge part of how they want to play tactically. In this game, they come in and set up in a 4-4-2 or a 4-4-1-1 defensive block that's really narrow. It's, It's almost like, if you think about that midfield line of four, oftentimes it's a flat line of four, 
Theirs is a two, a double pivot in, in the middle of that line. And then the two wingers, the outside midfielders, are higher and a little bit pinched in. It's not quite the full Red Bull, full triple two or anything like that, but it is designed specifically to force play out wide and to force Man City or whoever the opponent is into playing around the block instead of through it. And so West Ham are are trying to optimize the, the space that they cover defensively. They're trying to force the opposition into low-value areas. Then they're going to win the ball or, or they're going to play long from goal and, and go direct, right? And that happened in this game. Taylor, I think you're really wise to credit Fabianski in goal for West Ham because he was getting the ball upfield quickly. And in this game, City didn't do a great job, certainly on the two goal sequences, of winning the ball. And so when West Ham won the ball, and it's a lot easier to do when you have Mikel Antonio and the other team doesn't have Mikel Antonio, when you win the ball and then go quickly in behind in this game in particular, City, I think, with their makeshift back line, just couldn't get their offside line right. They couldn't regroup quickly enough yeah. after the ball was bouncing in yeah. midfield. It's Laporte too far back. It's Zinchenko too far back. They weren't together. And, and you yeah. can't afford to make mistakes like that against a team, maybe against any Premier League team, but certainly one like West Ham, who is so devastating in their brief moments of possession. Yeah, Joe, that distribution for Fabianski, for the first one, it, it is that kind of quick uh, outlet uh, punt that's, I think, I think it's Fornals who brings it down, uh, but either, either way, it's just it's a it's great distribution. It's inch perfect in the way he hits it. But for the second one, the thing that stood out to me was he punts that out of the stadium. <laughs> he puts so much height on it. I call those a, that a moon ball, and I have to believe it's because he's got Suchek in the middle. He's giving Suchek time to get underneath that one because they're backing themselves to win those fifty fifties. They're going to be more aggressive in the air. Suchek has a bit of height, and that's exactly how that plays out. So I think the distribution was both direct when it needed to be but also just strategic in the way they went about it and I think for Man City I echo your sentiments about uh, Laporte being a little bit too deep but Zinchenko especially Uh, and it starts with there's the header for Dawson in like the third minute Zinchenko just completely loses him and Dawson has a wide open header that he puts over should have at the very least been put on frame I don't know what the XG was but I'm guessing it was solid but then uh, he completely loses Bowen for the first goal Uh, he tries to catch him offside having lost him again for the second but instead just does that really awkward thing of looking like he's running the wrong way uh trying to catch him with the offside trap when the attacker then runs in on the goal uh Zinchenko also has a few panicky moments on the ball he is the one where he tries to clear it kind of no look and hits a 30 yard on the on the ground pass upfield straight to a West Ham player and that leads to a counter and that I think gets back to Graham's point of Kyle Walker I think also just brings veteran stability and presence and a little bit of bite to that defense and I think when they do get a little bit sloppy when there are those moments of inconsistency you need that veteran presence who's been there before to kind of step up and take the lead. And when you have Cancelo having to swap sides, Zinchenko coming in, and a back and a, and a center back pairing of Laporte and Fernandinho, certainly there are a lot of reps there, but I don't know if they have the, that sort of veteran defensive, I've been here before, I know what to do presence that Kyle Walker certainly would have. So I, I think in the end, it's, it's a credit to City that they're able to pull uh, one point back, but I think at the same time, could have been much, much worse for them on the day. It was uh, an emotional day for West Ham. Uh, they waved goodbye to Mark Noble after 18 seasons with the club. He started when he was 17 years old there. He got a 16th 16th minute ovation uh, from the home crowd. Uh, sadly, no uh, John Terry, uh, you know, 16 <laughs> minute substitution and guard of honour. Uh, none of that business. He came on for the last 15 minutes or so. Uh, but Graham, can, can we give... A, a large amount of credit for David Moyes for what he's done with West Ham and the, you know, the discipline he's instilled in this team. Bear in mind, what, they're seventh now? They were sixth last season. The season before that, they finished 16th. Um, to, to bring yeah. that kind of consistency he has, he's got to get some credit. 
Absolutely. I think his resurgence, um, his recovery as a, as a Premier League manager, I can't really recall anything like it, where he was completely, completely written off. And I, I had completely written off. I certainly didn't think he was capable of managing at the very top level again. And when he returned to West Ham, because keep in mind, this is his second stint as West Ham manager. When he returned, before last season, all the seasons kind of mix into one because of COVID, but whatever season it was that he returned, that summer there were protests, big protests outside the London Stadium. Now, those protests were about a lot of things, about the ownership of West Ham, and there's still a lot of disgruntlement among that fan base over Golden Sullivan and Karen Brady and everything like that. But a a large part of it, the prompt, the thing that, that forced fans to go out in protest was David Moyes coming back to the club and the lack of transfers as well that summer. And from that, West Ham challenged for top four last season, um, this season, challenge for top four again for a large part of the campaign, and they look like they're they're on course to finish in the European places again. I think at this moment, are they sixth? They're ahead of Manchester United right now, yeah. which would put them in the Europa League again. They get to the semi-finals of the Europa League this season, and absolutely, I I think David Moyes deserves a huge amount of credit because, as I say, it, it's not like they've gone out and spent huge amounts of money. In fact, they've not spent much at all. They need to spend a little bit more to maybe take that next step. And David Moyes has adapted his system a little bit more. He's still, the fundamentals of his game are still there. He's very much about kind of wing play and crosses. And he's all, that's, that's always been his game. But he is looking to, I always think if you look to the wide forward areas now in that West Ham team, you can see where the difference is in Moyes' approach because he would never have played players like Bowen or Pablo Fornals. They wouldn't have played in his his previous Everton team. So he is he is evolving and he is changing with the times. And as you say, Ryan, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, and West Ham are in seventh. Uh, they're two points by Manchester United in sixth, but they are confirmed for European uh, action next season, Conference League at the moment. We'll see how that one pans out next week. Way to talk about Bowen, by the way, Graham. The for his first goal where he sort of um, gets around the keeper. When they show it in slow motion, you see that he doesn't even look up. And he's at like a 25, 30 degree angle to the goal. And he doesn't look up when he, when he hits a shot. I, 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 don't know how he, I don't know how professionals do it. How do they do it? Tell me, Graham. The, the very <laughs> definition of the cliche knows where the goal is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fantastic stuff. Uh, I've got one more question on this game. Uh, Joe, I'll come to you. Uh, we mentioned Erling Harden coming next season to Manchester City. Uh, and sort of inferred that he might score 4,000-ish goals. If this is this seems like the kind of game where he might be super useful. Where you got an opponent who you know forces Pep into playing a bunch of crosses and you know a mid mid to low block. When you've got someone like Harland in the middle to receive those crosses, it seems like this is exactly the kind of midish level opponent where City are going to clean up with Harland. Am I right in thinking that? Uh, maybe. Weirdly, I'm not sure that Holland is very good at heading the ball, and I'd have to go back through and look at the the shots he's taken and the goals that he scored. But that's not really the first thing I think of when I think of Erling Holland. He's a big guy, and he is strong in certain ways. But aerial, aerially dominant is not how I tend to think of Holland. This, this is a game, and I, I've seen a few folks say this. John Muller's had a, a story out. I haven't had a chance to read it because I think it just came out this morning. It, it echoes uh, for what the you athletics. just said, Joe. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's this idea that Holland is a very good player, but he thrives in space. And, and I talked about this last week, right? I think we had a little Holland discussion on Weekend Review. He thrives in space. And, and if there's one thing that opposing teams like to 
restrict and limit when they're playing Manchester City, it's space, especially space in behind. They do not want to let City break in beyond them. And that's kind of what turned this game on its head in in small doses where City were able to get in and break into the box in the final third. Holland wants like a half of space. He wants half of the field to run into. I, I think Holland has a very good chance to be a very good Premier League player and, and maybe turn this City team into something even scarier than they already are. But I also think it might be a little more complicated for Holland to fit into this team and how they play and how opponents force them to play than maybe a lot of folks realize. Interesting stuff. All right. Holland has scored. Sorry, this is a quick Google job, but Holland over his whole Dortmund career scored six headed goals. Wow. <laughs> is that all? To be yeah, fair, he so misses every to, other now, game with an injury. Now I'm, yeah, now I'm trying to figure out how many goals he scored in total. So in the Bundesliga, he scored 62. I'm not sure what he scored in all competitions, but... Six out of sixty-two is not is not. I read it's it's not great, and I think he'll need to work on his heading ability. I think he'll need to work on his foot skills a little bit because City would be expected to have more possession. But it's not like Dortmund never had possession. I think they were possession dominant for most of the season, and that's the thing. There's a few different articles. The John Muller one, uh, Joe, is excellent, but there's a couple other ones that explain how that move happened. And it does sound like one of the things that City sold the Holland camp on is the idea that they know that he's injury prone and they know he has issues. And their point was, if you go to Real Madrid with the money it's going to cost and the profile they have you are going to be expected to play every single game and score goals in every single game otherwise it's seen as a failure whereas with City Pep knows how to rotate and has proven he can rotate star players and give them a little bit of a break and I think that that was a selling point the idea that Holland can come in adapt isn't being looked to to score every single goal and be the kind of front and central figure obviously he will end up being that but I I, I think that was a, a strong selling point for him that there is a plan and part of that plan involves giving him rest opportunities as opposed to playing him every single game. The other thing I thought was really interesting from some of those articles is the idea that the release clause that we all saw quoted was was not accurate. That was pretty fascinating that the 75 million euro fee, it's actually 60. Uh, that was it was slightly inflated. But I think in the end, City will end up spending about 100 million euros on this one when it comes to agent fees Seems like his dad gets a cut of the money as well. And then you add on £400,000 per week for, on a five-year deal. City going to be spending some money on Erling Haaland. So I'm guessing they're hoping that he gets better at heading and better with his feet and more I, consistent on top of that. I know I know, City are spending a huge amount of money to sign him, but I honestly think he's completely worth it. Yep. And I, it seemed like when when... He signed for City when that deal was announced. It seemed like every newspaper was trying to up the fee. So they were counting. Yeah. First of all, it was the transfer fee, 60 million euros. Then they would add the wages onto it. Then they would add the agent fees. And it didn't matter really how big that number got. I still thought to myself, yeah, that's worth it. That seems about right for a player who could win a Ballon d'Or at some point in the next few years. I really think he's that good. And as I said, I think last week, getting a natural goal, sc- goal scorer like him, there aren't many of them around. I mean, how, how many goal scorers are in his class you would say Lewandowski Benzema Kane and then obviously you've had Ronaldo and Messi that's about it that's Mbappe I guess that's about it that like they're really difficult to come by and if you have the opportunity to tie one down on a five-year contract you just give them the money 
I think is yep. the strategy. So, and I think especially yeah. with some of those names you mentioned, Graham, it's debatable. Like, would you rather have an in his prime Lewandowski or an in his prime Erling Holland? But I would argue Holland is so young, we don't necessarily know if he's hit his prime, but we know Lewandowski has. It really does, for me, come down to: Would you rather have Holland or Mbappe? That's kind of the two. I think they're the two most obvious goal scoring strikers if you're going to spend some money. And it is no surprise to me that as the Holland deal gets finalized, there are the reports today that like Mbappe to Madrid is still definitely happening. We promise it's going to happen. We promise it's going to happen. It's almost like maybe Real Madrid are trying to put out some PR to make sure that everybody knows they're still uh, front and center, a very big club. Uh, so maybe we will end up getting a Champions League final next season with Man City and Erling Haaland playing Real Madrid and Kylian Mbappe. Wow. Taylor, I didn't read the Haaland article to which you referred, but you mentioned agents fees. I'm sorry mm-hmm. if this is a slightly morbid question, but did it say where those it fees did. go now? It goes to Raiola's operation, which has been taken over by another lawyer. I forget his name. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the same agency because it was a rather large agency. And it was that new lawyer that actually finalized this deal. Raiola started the negotiations, but it was uh, the overall agency that completed them. So you would assume they will continue on even though Mino Raiola has passed. Uh, and then, as I said, some of those fees also going to Holland's father, a former Man City player. So... I guess the family gets richer, and that's good for them. And lest we forget, there's a is either a brother or a cousin out there. I don't know what he's doing, but he broke through a couple years ago when he scored like 17 goals in one game or something like that. And he is equally as physically imposing. So we've got one Holland. Maybe we'll have another one oh, coming through in the near future. Goodness me. I, I'm, I'm picturing Roy Keane being very angry about Alf Inger Haaland making some money out of this deal as well. <laughs> yep. Anyway. This uh, is Alf Inger's revenge, <laughs> his, his son. Yep. This was a plan he... he uh, <laughs> He, he spawned, yeah. He, how, how old is Haaland? 22 years. He's 20. Yeah, he spawned us 22 years ago. I, and this I, is it coming to fruition. I kind of, I mean, I don't think there's any way Man, Man United would have gotten Holland, especially in their present incarnation. But even if they were like winning and being solid, maybe, maybe I'm being too naive. But I always wondered that if there was an element of like, nope, your player gleefully tried to break my leg and destroyed my knee. I don't want to play for you. I don't want my son to play for you. So we're going to go to your crosstown rival and humiliate you further. I, I do wonder if that's a little bit of a twist of the knife there from the Hollands. Mm, playing a long game. All right, we've gone very long. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go to the Women's FA Cup final and round up the rest of Europe's leagues. Look at a little look at MLS. And uh, we'll get there very shortly. Back soon. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Uh, Chelsea did win an FA Cup at Wembley this weekend. The Women's FA Cup, uh, they beat Manchester City 3-2. Sam Kerr getting a brace and Aaron Cuthbert getting a goal for Chelsea. Did you catch this one, G? I did, indeed. And it was worth it alone for Aaron Cuthbert's absolute banger off the underside of the crossbar. As we all know, every goal that hits the underside of the crossbar is uh, immediately better than any other goal and she's got that in her and she's got that in her locker she scored a pretty famous goal against Jamaica before the 2019 Women's World Cup at Hamden and this was sort of reminiscent of that and I think she might be Caroline Weir, Erin Cuthbert they're they're kind of our best two players at the moment so it was good to see a Scottish player make their uh, make their mark at Wembley. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. All right, why don't we take a look around the houses of the Premier League. Uh, on Sunday evening, we had Everton 2, Brentford 3. Some drama at Goodison Park here. A bit of an implosion, the likes of which we haven't seen since Leeds did it last week. Uh, Everton had the lead twice here, but losing 3-2 and having a couple of players sent off as well. Uh, who caught this one? Graham, you catch this one? I did. I did watch this match. It was a bit wild, and I'm not sure it totally went to plan for Everton. Well, obviously it didn't because they lost, but it was very much in contrast to their recent controlled 
performances. I guess if Jared Branthwaite doesn't get the red card, red card in the first half. By the way, Jared Branthwaite is a player that I signed in Football Manager and was pretty sure he was a regen and wasn't a real player. But apparently, <laughs> he is a real player. Uh, and he got sent off in this match, a young central defender. So it's a shame, obviously, that um, that maybe cost Everton in this match. But between this and the draw against Watford during the week, you have to wonder if Everton will rue the missed opportunity to pick up more than just a single point. Because if you look at their fixtures, how it's going to go from now until the end of the season, quite difficult. And they are certainly not out of trouble yet. Maybe you manifested Brentway into existence, Graham. Maybe. Yeah. I do have that power. You do indeed. Uh, Leeds won, Brighton won. A bit of hope for Leeds here, Joe Lowry. Uh, Danny Welbeck with a nice chip for the opener and Pascal Stroke uh, heading the equaliser here. Leeds climbing out the bottom three with this one, but Burnley having a game in hand. Yeah, and what a what a bit of composure from Joe Gilhart on the pass that leads to Strauch's header. He shows so much patience on the right side of the box. He's, he's right on the end line. He's surrounded by Brighton defenders, and he still manages to keep the ball and, and get it over to Strauch at, at the back post. This was a huge result for Leeds, and you could see how much it meant to them and how important it was. The crowd, as the header went in, just erupted in second half stoppage time. They knew how massive that point was. It pushed them up to 17th and out of the relegation zone, at least temporarily. So Ryan, you, you were going through some of this. Leeds have just one game left this season. They're sitting on 35 points from 37 games. Their last game was against Brentford on Sunday. Burnley, who's the other team closest to the relegation battle, Everton is is still in that conversation as well. But Burnley uh, has 34 points from 36 games. So they have a game in hand on Leeds. They play that game in hand against Aston Villa on Thursday. Then they have Newcastle on Sunday. So I, I don't know which way this is going to go. Leeds still have, uh, according to 538, the highest odds of being relegated among Everton, Burnley, and, and of course Leeds themselves. I don't know what's going to happen, but Sunday, Ryan Bailey could end up being extremely spicy. Spicy indeed. Moy Caliente, Premier League Sunday coming up. We look forward to that one. Uh, we'll be reviewing it next weekend. Uh, next Monday, I should say, of course. Uh, Tottenham beating Burnley, Graham, uh, with a 1-0 win. Harry Kane penalty getting the goal there to send Burnley into the relegation zone, as Joseph said there. Uh, Tottenham moving above Arsenal into the top four. For now, at least, as we record, Arsenal will be uh, getting a game against Newcastle this evening. Yeah, and, and a hugely, obviously I'm stating the obvious here, but a hugely important win for Tottenham because it backs up that that very impressive North London derby victory over Arsenal during the week. I think it was 62 hours between the games and you could see that Spurs were slightly leggy in this match where Burnley had a full week to prepare. It was nonetheless a very one-sided 1-0. One um, had it not been for Nick Pope and the number of saves he made, this might have been a lot more comfortable for Spurs. And... Uh, Ryan, you were mentioning there Premier League Sunday. If we get to the final day of, of the season with the title race so close, the top four race so close, and the rele relegation scrap so close as well, you could argue this is one of the best uh, finishes to a Premier League season ever, where you've got kind of all three uh, things still to be settled. I can't really recall that ever happening before. Yeah, NBC are very thankful, I'm sure, Graham. Because uh, they've had Indeed. many a broadcast where they put every game on a different channel hoping for some drama, and there's not really been any. So, yeah, hopefully a, a nice dramatic Sunday for the neutral at the very least. Uh, Wolves won, Norwich won. Wolves now eliminated from Olymp uh, European 
contention for next season and West Ham getting uh, into European contention as we mentioned earlier dropping points here Wolves now winless in six they've fallen off a bit uh, Aston Villa won Crystal Palace won meh nothing to play for there Watford won Leicester five uh, Vardy scoring twice here Watford being utter garbage Graham with their <laughs> new manager um, from Forest Green Rovers Rob Edwards in attendance for this one yeah, I mean, some of the the defending in this match was frankly laughable. I know we've said Manchester United have given up on this season, but wow, Watford <laughs> are asking Man United to hold their beer with this performance. <laughs> this is a club that badly needs a reset. And as you said there, Ryan, they have already appointed a new manager, Rob Edwards, who was at this game. He's been hired from uh, Forest Green Rovers for the start of next season. Interestingly enough, I don't think Forest Green Rovers were very happy about Edwards going to Watford. They uh, put out a pretty spicy sta- uh, statement on Twitter, some some Twitter beef, which I guess is quite ironic for Forest Green Rovers, but uh, Edwards <laughs> apparently is a, a, a very a, a young coach, sorry, with a, a, a very good reputation. I have to say, I haven't really seen much of Forest Green Rovers this season. So maybe he's rubbish, but Watford seemed to think he's pretty good. And uh, yeah, it feels like they need some new ideas. So he might be the man for them. Forest Green Rovers, a famously vegan club having Twitter beef. Graham did a funny, everybody. Well done. That was good. Uh, Serie A. Serie A. Let's go to Serie A. Milan to Atalanta nil. Uh, Rafael Leal and Tio Hernandez getting the goals here. A lovely solo run from uh, for Hernandez for his goal as well. Um, Graham, I enjoyed the whole San Siro singing Pioli's on fire to the Freed from Desire tune at the end. The Will Griggs on fire tune, if you will. Yeah. And thousands of fans outside the stadium before the game welcoming Milan's uh, coach, its bus, as it came towards the stadium. Zlatan being so excited at the front of the this. that he cracked the glass by hitting it so hard <laughs> i have to say it's, it's pretty impressive because if you see the video he's not it's not even as if he's punching it with his knuckles he yeah. kind of hits it flat with Open his palm, palm. Yeah. and he shatters the windscreen of the bus by doing that <laughs> so maybe all those chuck norris-esque stories that he told about himself over the years maybe they were actually true maybe we we, we he deserves a bit of credit for that yeah, indeed, indeed. So uh, Milan marching towards the title, which they could wrap up next weekend uh, for the first time in 12 years. They could have wrapped it up this weekend if their neighbours Inter did not win. They did at Cagliari 3-1, Graham. Yeah, and and as you say, the pressure was really on Inter because anything less than a win would have handed AC Milan the Scudetto. Uh, goals from Darmian and Ma- uh, Lautaro Martinez had Inter cruising at 2-0, but then Cagliari pulled one back and it got a bit nervy for a while and there was a period when Cagliari are pressing for an equaliser and AC Milan must have anticipated a bit of a title party, but then Martinez scores a third with another one of those lovely chipped finishes over the goalkeeper that he is uh, he's so good at. And next weekend is going to be wild because you have the two Milan clubs going for the Scudetto on the final day. This is the first time since 2008 that the Scudetto race will have gone down to the final day. And as I say, it's, it just adds an extra level of intrigue that you have the two Milan clubs being the, the ones that can win it. Yeah, fans being treated this season in many European leagues. Two-point difference, as you say, Graham. Milan at Sassuolo next weekend and Inter hosting Samp. Uh, we shall see how that one... Uh... That's By the way, that's the Sassuolo team that have beaten Atalanta, Fiorentina, Inter, Lazio and Juventus this season and who beat Issa Milan 3-1 at the San Siro in November. So maybe no it's not over yet. No pressure, Pioli. No pressure going to be fine uh la liga let's go there real quick uh hatafe nil barcelona nil uh cadiz 1-1 with real madrid atleti 1-1 with sevilla uh anything to say about la liga graham 
Not not really at the top end because the things are already settled with Real Madrid being champions, Barcelona securing second place and Atleti and Sevilla all but certain to finish in the top four. I guess one thing that was quite notable was Luis Suarez being confirmed as leaving Atletico Madrid at the end of the season. That's been on the cards for a while. He hasn't played much in the last few months. I don't think he has the fitness or physicality to play week in, week out at this level anymore. I've seen reports that Aston Villa are interested in him. I would honestly be wary unless he's a, a, an impact sub or a rotation option because, as I say, the, he's going to be a lot of money for um, for a player that might not be able to play all that much. And then in terms of the games at the weekend, the biggest storyline in La Liga was Real Mallorca scoring a stoppage time winner against Rayo Vallecano. They needed that win to give themselves any chance of staying up in La Liga. They looked dead and buried a few weeks ago. And the scenes were quite something at the end of that match. You had players in tears and collapsed on the pitch at full time. So they definitely aren't out of trouble just yet, but they have given themselves a chance. Indeed. Cadiz, Mallorca and Granada fighting for safety in La Liga. Bundesliga time. Final day of the season in Germany, T-Rock. Uh, Dortmund got a 2-1 win over Hertha Berlin. Erling Haaland uh, clapped on the field during his warm-up um, to show appreciation for him bear-hugging things and such. Yeah. Uh, scored the equalising penalty. Hertha, uh, losing this one, left them in yeah. 16th. They will now face a relegation playoff against Hamburg. Yeah, they will. Let's talk about that for a moment because uh, this is going to be a while, fellas, but buckle up because the end of the Bundesliga season I thought was really fascinating because it is Hertha going into the relegation playoff. Stuttgart staying up. Uh, here's how we're going to break it down. With four games to go in the Bundesliga season, you had Hertha on 29 points, Stuttgart on 28, and they were playing each other. Hertha won that game at home 2-0. That put Hertha on 32 points, four points ahead of Stuttgart with three games to go. Uh, they draw. They each draw their next game, uh, Stuttgart against Wolfsburg, Hertha against Bielefeld, so there's still that four-point gap. The penultimate game of the season, Stuttgart draw at Bayern Munich. A big draw to get uh, against Bayern Munich, who had obviously already secured the title. But still, when you add that to Hertha losing to Mainz, suddenly it's now a three-point gap. Uh, Hertha still ahead, 33 points to 30. And then this weekend, in very dramatic fashion, Hertha took the lead in the eighth minute. Dortmund eventually uh, get the win. So Hertha stayed on 33 points. Stuttgart played Köln. Here we go. Stuttgart gets a penalty in the 11th minute. Sasha Kalajdzic steps up to take it. It's missed, or rather it's saved, pushed over the bar for a corner. Head in hands, he is depressed. But then he scores the header off of that ensuing corner to make it 1-0. Corner able to get one back in the second half. Uh, It's 1-1 after Stuttgart goalkeeper Florian Muller just drops a cross onto the head of a Colton player who heads it in. And suddenly it, uh, it's one-to-one. And it should have been way easier for Stuttgart because Watoro Endo had two very good chances at the end of the first half. Both of them he puts over the bar, both of them from like inside the six-yard box. So it starts to feel like a uh, missed penalty, missed chances. Now it's one-to-one. Things aren't going to go our way. And then in the 92nd minute, the aforementioned Wataru Endo steps up, uh, gets a header off of a Hiroki Ito flick on from a corner in the dying moments of this one. That means they're level on points, 33 points each between Hertha and uh, Stuttgart. But Stuttgart with the superior goal difference. Stuttgart stays up. 
uh, Hertha goes into that relegation playoff against Hamburg, which I think is May 19th and May 23rd. It's home and away. And that is going to be dramatic because both of those are big clubs who should arguably both be in the Bundesliga. And my final note to round this out is I was telling my wife this story because I, f- I found it so interesting and uh, did a lot of reading about it last night and was telling her. And it's really exciting because Stuttgart have an American manager, even though he's he's very Italian. Uh, and she said, oh, what's his name? And I said, his name is Pellegrino Matarazzo. And she laughed and said, that sounds like someone had to come up with the most Italian name they could think of on the fly. And they <laughs> nailed it. And that is true. It never really occurred to me that Pellegrino Matarazzo is a, just a phenomenal name. And I guess a phenomenal manager because he kept up Stuttgart uh, at the expense of Hertha Berlin. Still, dramatic times and a fun time in the Bundesliga. Did we establish, Taylor, he was from Fountains of Wayne, New Jersey, as seen in Sopranos <laughs> and as named after by a band? Yes. Which, yes, led to the revelation that that fountain uh, store in Sopranos is the namesake for the band. And it's my favorite thing in the world that you've introduced me to, Ryan. Thank you for that. You is welcome. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so Amelia Bielefeld and Kreuterfurt also went down uh, at the top of the table by Leverkusen, got a 2-1 win over Freiburg. They finished third. Uh, Leipzig got a draw with the aforementioned Amelia Bielefeld, enough to finish fourth for them. MLS time. Joe Lowry, Club de Foot Montreal, are still top of the East with a 2 new winner. <clears throat> Charlotte FC. <laughs> yes. Ryan, you're very noble. I didn't think you were going to let me talk about this game. I do appreciate that. Montreal are on top of the Eastern Conference. As you say, they are a very, very good team right now. They they did a good job of destabilizing Charlotte's midfield diamond, Charlotte in that 4-4-2 that Miguel Angel Ramirez has come to, to rely on this season. Montreal in their 3-4-3. They, they moved the ball laterally to force the diamond to shift. They overloaded Brent Barnico as that number six with Georgi Mihailovic and Joaquin Torres. And they scored a beautiful goal with Kamal Miller getting the ball into the center, cir- center circle, finding Torres, and Torres plays it in behind to Romel Kyoto. And then Kyoto squares it to Georgi Mihailovic for a tap-in at the edge of the six-yard box. Such a good goal from a really quality team. For my money, Montreal are one of the most interesting and entertaining teams to watch right now. That was one game that caught my eye, and my CFC going all-out attack against Columbus in a 2-0 win at Yankee Stadium was another one. This team just has so much talent. This game had a Tati Castellanos chip. This game had uh, a center mid playing right back because Ronnie Dyla has gone full Pep Guardiola slash is dealing with a bunch of injuries and, and all that good stuff. But still, NYCFC... A very strong team as well. We had a direct derby, which is what I've branded. The Union taking on the New York Red Bulls. Pressing, aggressive, winning second balls, counter-pressing, scoring quick goals, all of those kinds of things. This game had all that stuff in a 1-1 draw. That was a fun one. And, And the last point I'll make here on MLS this weekend is Sporting Kansas City. They gave up a touchdown. They lost 7-2 to Portland on Saturday night. A touchdown and an extra point, I should say. This team is not good. And, and the seven goals flatters Portland here quite a bit. That's pretty much every five-goal or four-goal gap between scores will flatter the winning team. But man, Sporting Kansas City just got ripped apart in transition in this game. That's been a huge part of their struggles this season. They could be in line to miss the playoffs for just the second time. I guess really for the second time since 2019, which is a little more often than Peter Vermees would like. Thank you very much, Joe Lowry. Graham Rutherford. Hey now, hey now, the Arbro fairy tale is over. I know, I know. 
I'm so sad about it. Yeah, unfortunately, the, the Arbroath fairy tale came to an end on Friday night as they went out of the playoffs to Inverness. I won't lie, the game was probably the worst match I have ever seen. It was truly dreadful, but nonetheless, it was a shame to see the story end for, for Arbroath on penalties. They ended up losing on penalties. But even as they as they fell short, it's been an incredible season for Arbroath. They came close to they came so close to pulling off something I don't think people thought would ever be possible. They really could have won that title, in which case they would have gone on, uh, gone up automatically. They were winning in that final game against Kilmarnock with 12 minutes to go. Had they held on, they they likely would have gone up. There would have been one very winnable match to, to come in the final day. But going into the playoffs, you had a feeling that maybe they were just going to run out of steam. And that's what happened in the end. But nonetheless, a great season from our growth. And of course, it's a big week for Scottish football in general, as Rangers are in Sevilla for the Europa League final, which is on Wednesday night. Over 100,000 Rangers fans are going to be in Seville for the game. Just 9,000 tickets. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out. They're opening up the, the Cartuja, which is a 60,000-seater stadium for Rangers fans to watch the game. They'll sell that out easily. And keep in mind that Frankfurt also tend to bring huge numbers to European games. So I think this final might be unlike anything we've ever seen before. And all I can think is, poor Sevilla. I just hope that they are <laughs> able to cope with a quarter of a million football fans on Wednesday night. Wow. Just imagine the uh, demands for suntan lotion at Scottish airports in the last few days, Graham. Amazing. I saw, I saw someone tweeting, uh, not a football person, I think it was maybe a musician who was flying somewhere from Glasgow, saying Glasgow Airport this morning is a war scene, uh, which <laughs> that sounds about right. I mean, that's yeah, that's a day ending in why, I'd, I'd imagine, Graham. Um, Taylor, last but not yes, least, uh, we should probably talk about the championship yeah. playoffs with uh, the, the big part they play in selecting mm. a Premier League team for us. We should, because we've got some Americans involved. Uh, Huddersfield had a one-to-one draw at Luton Town. Uh, Huddersfield then playing the second leg this afternoon, Monday, so probably will have already happened by the time some folks hear this. But Huddersfield at home with the one-to-one first leg, uh, I think we'll be feeling confident, especially since they are the top playoff team. Their third finishers in the championship, Luton, were sixth. But even if they do win in advance, I think they're going to be a little bit nervous because Nottingham Forest were fourth in the table. Uh, they beat Sheffield United at Sheffield United. It was a 3-1 to one win. It could have been way worse because Sheffield only got their goal courtesy of Sandberga, uh, I think, in like the 90th minute. So up until then, it was 3-0, and you would assume Forest feeling confident, not least because since February, they have only lost two games in the championship. In 17 games, they've gotten 37 points, 34 goals for, and 9 against not including that win over Sheffield so I think we'll end up seeing Nottingham Forest in the playoff final and I would probably back Nottingham Forest unfortunately Ethan Horvath not playing Bryce Samba started between the sticks in that one so maybe we'll get Ethan Horvath on the bench versus Dwayne Holmes on the pitch for Huddersfield in that playoff final Maybe so. We should give a shout out to Luton Town, by the way, Taylor, um, who I'm going to say nine seasons ago were non-league. The way they've mm. climbed through the EFL is quite incredible. They're a small team. They've got a terrible little stadium, no offense, which probably isn't suitable for Premier League soccer. Are they um, still playing at Kenilworth Road? They're still at Kenilworth Road, where like, the wow. sight lines are terrible and it, it looks very, very non-league. 10,000 so, capacity. Wow. All right. Yeah. All right, Luton yeah. Town. Yeah. Up the headers, um, up the headers. But credit to them, because as I say, it is so difficult to climb that AFL pyramid, and they've done incredible work to get to a championship playoff and to get within sniffing distance uh, of the Prem. Um, can All I right. take a shot as to the industry that Luton was famous for? Because it was either crazy people or making hats. It's one or the other. 
yes, why not both? Uh, they are the mad hatters, of course, Tay-Tay. Very, very good indeed. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for con- <laughs> contributions for this here weekend review. <laughs> That's just outstanding concluding by you, Ryan. Thank you, my friend. And it was good. I mean, I like the Forest Green Rovers um, joke better, though. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Joe, thank you, sir. You're wonderful. Oh, right back at you. Listener, you're more wonderful, though. Thank you for sticking with us. And we'll have another one on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.